0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the General History Channel of the New Books Network. Welcome back. My name's Dr. Miranda Melcher, and today I have the distinct pleasure to interview Dr. Schollhofer-Wall about his book Quagmire in Civil War, which is published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. In this book, he, he tackles an incredibly tricky challenge to those of us studying conflict and civil wars, which is what is quagmire? It's a concept that we often hear about, especially in the news, and yet digging into it, there's not a lot of clarity about what it actually means and how it happens and where it happens. Thankfully, we now have this brilliant book that launches an entire conceptualization theory and shows it in practice, what actually is quagmire in civil war and how can we understand it? So it's great that we have here today, the author of this wonderful book, quagmire in civil war, to help us understand this complicated, even if frequently used term. So thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Melcher. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I wanted to ask you first, um, this is such a fascinating book that takes an often used term and immediately shows that even though it can be quite useful and evocative, we don't necessarily understand what it actually means and what the implications are of this meaning. So you lay out this great model with examples and empirics. How did you come to this research question and how did you come to write this book?
2: Yes, uh, so I was... Originally, in my graduate school studies, uh, very fascinated by seeing some civil wars uh, where it looked like the warring parties were very much trapped in the fighting. And I put it that way because I don't think I had a much clearer or well-defined sense of what that really meant, but it seemed to me that some civil wars were sort of proceeding in a different way or not proceeding in a different way compared to what warfare usually looked like. And it took me a long time to try to conceptualize what that meant, Uh, but the result is this book, um, which is really focusing on this question of when the belligerents in a civil war become trapped in the conflict. And as you mentioned, that's um, in many ways different from some common ways in which the word quagmire is used. So I think the one that uh, many people are familiar with is kind of quagmire in a foreign policy sense of the word, which just generally means when a country gets itself into a situation that it finds difficult to extricate itself from. And what I really wanted to say in the book is that that's certainly a useful term for foreign policy, but let's try to think about quagmire for civil wars, what does it mean when the belligerents themselves, the warring parties within the country, are trapped in the conflict?
1: And that comes through really clearly. Um, In fact, as someone who uh, teaches and did degrees in political science, I would really recommend the book for the clarity of your argument and laying out the conceptualization. It's very easy to understand exactly what you're trying to say from the beginning of the book. Um, And so, in fact, your central argument states that the strategic structure of a civil war produces quagmire through two mechanisms, foreign assistance as a subsidy and the substitution between territorial and non-territorial warfare. So can you help us understand a bit more about kind of what you mean by that and where it might be different um, from what people might expect?
2: Certainly. So... Um, The book is is basically starting the argument um, against the kind of uh, popular understanding of quagmire for civil wars that holds that we get this kind of a messy or difficult situation in a civil war as the result of the nature of the country in which it's taking place or of the kind of war that's being fought. So you can think of this... um, through examples that we've seen in in the past years. Um, When the Obama administration was considering military action in Syria, President Obama was kind of famous for saying, well, look, uh, in that part of the world, people have been fighting each other for thousands of years, and we don't want to uh, get involved in something that we don't understand and we're going to end up stuck in it. And um, this kind of idea that, you know, just some countries will inevitably develop quagmire. That's out there. Uh, But what I wanted to see was, you know, could we say more about the incentives that actually exist uh, for the armed groups that are fighting the war? Why would they end up trapped in a conflict? And um, that's where uh, this explanation basically comes out against that conventional wisdom in the book. Uh, What I try to explain is that essentially you have um, foreign states that are potentially backing these armed groups within the Civil War, and you have these groups that are fighting each other within the Civil War, and their interactions, uh, in which each party is basically choosing what's best for itself, those interactions can sometimes produce quagmire. So it doesn't have to do with some kind of property of the country. or or this situation that somehow pre-exists, quagmire is actually created by the foreign states and the warring parties interacting with each other. And I think that makes it in some ways a far more tragic situation because, in essence, um, all of these actors are trying to do their best, and the outcome is a very horrible one.
1: I really appreciated how you laid this out such that it wasn't sort of inevitable. Oh, this country, just the way that they are leads to quagmire. Um, And it's really helpful to sort of break it down into the pieces. And so I was wondering if you could help us understand a bit more, what are the kinds of actions or inactions that make a conflict more likely to have a quagmire versus not?
2: One of the sort of fundamental uh, building blocks for it ends up Uh, being the role of foreign states and their sort of uh, intervention, whether it's direct or indirect, uh, providing some kind of support or assistance uh, to the groups that are fighting the war. And uh, I say it with all of those qualifiers because one of the things that the book uncovers is that it basically takes a very low threshold of this kind of foreign assistance in order to uh, set up the situation for quagmire. You can think about that kind of from the perspective of foreign states um, when we look at civil wars around the world today. If you look at Syria and all of the countries that have been involved uh, over the last decade in Syria, um, from neighbors of Syria to regional powers to uh, global powers, most of them don't have sort of deep fundamental interests at stake in the war in Syria, but they're involved nevertheless. And what that means is that they're involved with kind of wide range of the intensity or level or amount of assistance that they're giving to the warring parties. Um, If we think back to the very beginnings of the war in Syria, Um, You might recall that uh, the U.S. State Department was having these debates about whether it should provide non-lethal assistance to the Syrian opposition, so kind of uh, communications technologies, other kinds of uh, material that would help them organize themselves, but that couldn't be used uh, in combat. And that kind of debate shows the way in which... um, this range of foreign support can be going to the parties but some of it can be at a quite low level and even that can be enough to produce this situation um, now i'm not sure i've yet answered your question so let me step back from there and say why is that support enough that, to create a quagmire situation the way we can think of it is that uh, the groups that are fighting in a war are kind of calculating. Um, how costly it is to continue fighting in the war, what they're expecting to gain if they're able to win it. And foreign intervention, uh, foreign support thrown into the mix kind of uh, changes this calculus because it acts as a subsidy. So it expands the range of conditions under which these groups are willing and able to fight and to continue fighting. And that's this this sort of um, first... Uh, way in which quagmire can be created. Um, the book also gets into a second mechanism uh, for quagmire, which is once this uh, foreign support is present and that subsidy effect is happening, um, there's also a, a sort of unexpected um, pathway, which is that um, because the warring parties can fight in different ways. Um, We can think of this as kind of different types of of warfare or military uh, technology that they can engage in. So they can do something standard, which is to try to take territory away from their enemy and defeat it outright, or they can do all kinds of operations that essentially put political pressure on their enemy, but don't actually make it impossible for the enemy to fight. So they can bombard the enemy, they can carry out raids, they can um, engage in terrorist attacks on the enemy's territory, and all of these things don't take territory away, but they're continuing the war. And once we see that, in fact, fighting can involve all of these types of warfare, uh, then it turns out that another pathway to quagmire can be a shift into uh, this second category, this non-territorial warfare. Warfare that's not aimed at taking away enemy territory. Um, and this can, can create the quagmire situation because we would normally think that when the cost of war goes up, uh, the warring parties are going to respond in some way to that, they're going to try to get out of the conflict, they're going to try to negotiate an agreement, or they're just going to have to stop fighting. But in fact, they can shift into this other kind of warfare. And that's a key mechanism uh, that results in this entrapment.
1: So that's really helpful. Thank you for laying out the two key mechanisms that produce quagmire. Um, And I'd love to kind of get more into how they interact. So do do both elements need to be there? The subsidy from foreign actors and the switching between territorial and non-territorial? Uh, types of warfare in order to produce a quagmire? Do they need to go in a particular order, first one, then the other? Um, how do you look at the interaction of these two mechanisms?
2: So so it's as, as you s- said at the end there, uh, one has to come before the other. So the foreign assistance is really the uh, necessary uh, condition here. And It in and of itself is a mechanism, but then it also makes it possible for this second mechanism of shifting the type of warfare to occur.
1: Got it. Thank you for clarifying that. And to further clarify, um, so that I understand, you're saying that uh, you need foreign assistance in order to then enable the switching between different kinds of warfare to produce quagmire. But you can have civil wars where you're shifting between the different kinds of warfare that just may or may not lead to quagmire.
2: That's correct. Yes. Uh, Great. So, yeah.
1: That, that's um, really clear. Um, and this is why I really recommend this book, because it creates this model that as someone I can say from my own experience doing research on some pretty complicated civil wars, including Lebanon, Angola and Mozambique, um, untangling all these different pieces is not easy. Um, and in fact, you've managed to do it with a theory, some case studies and some numbers Uh, So now that we've kind of established the theory, I'd love to ask you a bit more about the case studies, um, which in your book include Lebanon, Chad, and Yemen, uh, which you purposely describe as being both similar and different to each other. So I wonder if you could let our audience know a bit more about why those three case studies and how you chose them.
2: Certainly. So the case studies fit into the book in in a particular way. Um, Basically, the book builds its uh, argument and evidence uh, through a series of steps. So first, um, after explaining the argument, I take a look at uh, the Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990 through field research uh, with interviews of uh, former combatants and commanders who were involved on all sides of the war. And the purpose of that is uh, not necessarily to test explanation of quagmire but actually to look at its plausibility to see whether these mechanisms uh, actually seem like they might operate in uh, one case of a quagmire which is Lebanon. Uh, The next step then is that I look at um, cross-country statistical evidence on civil wars from the post-World War II period up until about 2006 and the goal of that is more to see uh, sort of is the evidence consistent with the predictions of the argument. Uh, so that's more of a testing exercise. And these case studies sort of fit it, the final piece of the puzzle in, which is to say, okay, um, you know, we, we can look at cross-country regressions, but they're not always uh, the most informative. You know, we're sometimes taking... Um, measuring variables that are distant proxies of the concept we're interested in. So can we look at several wars in much more detail and see whether these mechanisms actually look like they're playing out and whether the outcomes that are predicted play out. And um, I choose Chad and Yemen to compare and contrast with Lebanon uh, basically as a way to discuss potential alternative explanations Of why quagmire might occur and then to show through these case studies uh, that those explanations don't seem to be explaining why we get quagmire in one case uh, versus another and instead uh, that the book's explanation is actually uh, operating here. So uh, let me just explain then what what these uh, comparisons and contrasts are for those countries. Chad uh, is a case of another war um, that does experience quagmire, but Chad as a country um, and the civil war in Chad that I'm looking at are quite different from the Lebanese case. Um, So um, the terrain of Chad, the ethnic composition of it, uh, its strategic importance, Um, The kind of war that's being fought. Um, So in in Chad, this is very much a peripheral insurgency. In Lebanon, you have um, a lot of urban warfare in cities. Um, These are different on all of these dimensions. And many of these dimensions could be uh, things that you would think would explain quagmire that might explain why the warring parties were trapped here. But this contrast between Lebanon and Chad helps us isolate that, in fact, those kinds of explanations don't really tell us why quagmire occurred. Those things are very different across the two cases, but yet we still see the quagmire outcome in both of them. Then uh, Yemen sort of does, uh, does a similar function in terms of looking at alternative explanations, but um, through its similarity to Lebanon. So in Yemen, I'm looking at the 1994 civil war, which is uh, one that starts and ends within six months in 1994. And Lebanon and and Yemen have uh, many characteristics in common that you would think could also explain why you might get quagmire. Uh, But we see quagmire in Lebanon, but not in Yemen. And that helps us rule out those kinds of explanations Uh, for Quagmire. And again, we're left with um, this uh, question of foreign assistance functioning as a subsidy, and and that leading to this entrapment situation.
1: Great, that's incredibly clear. And in fact, this case studies, in order to test the theory against each other, was one of the most useful bits I found of the book, um, both in your ability to explain the dynamics of the different wars, but also just so clearly compare and contrast them. Um, So I was wondering if either from those three examples or from any of the other examples you came across, um, can you help illustrate for our audience a bit what might this sort of foreign assistance look like? Can you give us a particular example or a way in which this can lead to quagmire? Um, Just for those of us who might be less familiar about uh, the intricacies of particular civil wars. What does this particular element of your theory look like in practice?
2: Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you one example um, from Lebanon, actually, which which I think is is very informative in in terms of how these situations play out. Um, so in Lebanon, the civil war starts in nineteen seventy five. Uh, to sort of simplify it uh, tremendously, perhaps overly so. Uh, you can think about it as um, being fought between a pro-reform coalition that's trying to change the political system and a pro-status quo coalition that's fighting to preserve the existing political system. Um, and so that, that's basically a right-left cleavage in the civil war. Um, there are also many other issues in the background. The Palestinian armed groups that are operating in Lebanon after having been expelled from Jordan Uh, during its civil war. But fundamentally, we have these two sides in the war, the pro-reform and the pro-status quo. And over the course of 1975, they're fighting each other, and uh, they're both uh, soliciting um, and sort of being approached uh, with offers of outside support. Um, So you have, for example, if you look in the archival record, Uh, You see uh, U.S. embassies reporting about how uh, representatives of uh, one of the armed groups are kind of traveling around to different capitals asking for support um, in a a variety of countries. And they're getting this support in multiple ways. Some of it is financial. Uh, They're also getting arms and ammunition from other countries. And then um, into the mix, uh, you finally have uh, military intervention Uh, actually in the war uh, from Syria, and and later on from Israel. Um, So you really have a whole range of types of assistance that are going to the warring parties. But there's this one moment um, about a year into the war, um, in the winter of 1976, in which we can see clearly how foreign assistance is operating as a subsidy. So Um, During that winter, uh, the pro-reform side of the war is uh, not looking like it's in good shape. Uh, It's militarily weaker, um, and you can see that it's starting to lose some ground. And yet it makes what seems to be a very strange decision. It basically uh, provokes uh, one armed group that's kind of sitting on the sidelines. It provokes them into getting more into the war. Uh, on the side of the pro-reform coalition. So essentially, the weaker side in the war is provoking uh, the other side to become stronger and fight against it. And when I came across this in in my interviews, of course, I found this very puzzling. Why on earth uh, would the side that was weaker actually sort of make things worse for itself? But that comes against this entire backdrop Of all the foreign assistance that's being solicited and essentially uh, they're calculating that although uh, they seem to be weak at the time they're going to continue to get this assistance and that's going to basically bridge the gap between um, their present capabilities and uh, what they actually need to be able to continue to fight the war so even though they're weak we don't see them as somehow agree to peace or try to back out of the war. We see them intensify their participation in it, but it's because of that foreign assistance that's coming in.
1: That's a really helpful example. Um, Thank you for sharing it with the audience. Um, I know that Lebanon has, the Lebanese Civil War has many examples um, of this kind of process. So thank you for taking us through it. Um, similarly, given that your mechanism of quagmire has another piece of switching between territorial and non-territorial warfare, you spoke a little bit earlier about what those different types of non-territorial warfare could be. Um, but I was wondering if you had a particular example you could share with us again, either from one of your three case studies or generally from the research of this book.
2: Yes. So, um, from, from Lebanon, um, I don't know if this really qualifies as an example, but um, there's basically a transition point in the war where, um, in in the early months and years, uh, you're having actually uh, the two sides taking territory from each other, um, you know, uh, parts of cities or or villages changing hands and so on, and then. Fairly early in the war, actually, you basically get a a clear dividing line between the two sides, and that dividing line stays in place for most of the war. So for me, this was very surprising to see. Um, It was surprising to see that you could have a war go on for 15, 16 years without uh, any uh, major pushes to take territory during it. Um, and, And that was one of the sort of um, very, very salient examples for me of how you could see non-territorial fighting in a civil war. In, in other words, it, it sort of suggested that uh, we wouldn't always see um, operations uh, where one group was going after another and, and trying to finish it off permanently, but instead you could see this kind of application of military pressure to produce political decisions. Um, And so that in Lebanon would take the form of what some observers called artillery duels. So basically each side had heavy artillery, they would shell each other, uh, whether this was in Beirut or um, at other points uh, in the country, in the mountains, um, from one area to another, and they would do this regularly. And it wouldn't really be clear what the military advantage of doing that was, right? It wouldn't be followed by an offensive into that other territory, but this was just part of how the war was continuing.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50%
1: off. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And of course, combined with foreign subsidy, your theory and uh, cases show that this is what produces quagmire. Um, So thank you for explaining that. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how you did this research. Um, You mentioned before sort of interviews. And I know from reading the book that there's a lot you can say, actually, about how you came across this information. Um, So I was wondering if you could share a bit with the audience, uh, the interviews you did, sort of how you went through that process um, and particularly any sort of special highlights or challenges um, about the research process.
2: So maybe I can even um, back up one step to explain how I got interested in looking at Lebanon uh, for this book. Um, For me, studying uh, in political science and studying civil wars, um, I was sort of interested in them in general and in whatever countries they were occurring. But as I was reading about the Lebanese civil war, Uh, I got kind of fascinated by one portrayal of it in in some writings about Lebanon. And that portrayal was that basically the Lebanese Civil War was a very unique conflict and uh, somehow wasn't comparable to other wars. It wouldn't be possible to study it and learn things that would be lessons that would apply elsewhere. But it was thought that there was a really um, unusual or unique uh, configuration of factors that all uh, converged in Lebanon and maybe this was just you know being naive at the beginning of graduate school but I sort of looked at that and I thought okay this is really a challenge in some ways if if um, I'm studying in political science and learning that in general um, we aim to have theories that explain phenomenon across the board uh, there shouldn't be something like a unique case. Uh, instead, we should be able to learn what is special about Lebanon, but kind of parameterize that or, or measure it on certain factors and understand what makes Lebanon different from other countries. But once we know what makes it different from other countries, we can still learn lessons from it. And so I became more and more interested in studying the Lebanese Civil War as the sort of uh, centerpiece of this research. So the approach to studying it was really to try to learn about the war uh, from people who were making decisions within the armed groups that were fighting on the ground. And what I wanted to do then was to interview uh, former commanders and former fighters from across the spectrum of armed groups that were operating in Lebanon, from multiple armed groups that were in this pro-reform coalition and multiple armed groups that were in this pro-status-quo coalition. For me, um, doing these interviews when I was doing them uh, was um, in some ways a benefit for getting contacts across all of those armed groups because after the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon in um, 2006-2005, many of these armed groups and the political parties affiliated with them that had opposed each other in the civil war kind of realigned and some of them became allies uh, because of their stance on Syria at that period in time. And so I was kind of surprisingly able to get uh, recommendations from some people who I interviewed to talk to their former enemies from the Civil War because they had all now become political comrades in this new phase of politics.
1: That's quite convenient. Um, It can be nice when history lines up with useful research practices. Um, could you maybe share a bit about the kinds of research uh, that you gathered and looked for for Chad, Yemen, and looking at all the wars from the end of World War II to 2006?
2: Yes. Uh, so for for Chad and Yemen, um, in many ways, I, I felt uh, sort of in a difficult spot writing this part of the book because I knew that I wouldn't be doing it uh, justice compared to the Lebanon part, but I really wanted to make sure that I got as as sort of clear and true a picture as possible of what was happening as those wars played out. And so uh, I wanted to look then at a combination of different kinds of sources on the wars. I looked at um, secondary accounts of the wars, Uh, that were sort of uh, highly regarded and very comprehensive about them. But I also took a look at uh, primary sources on them that were available, whether this was um, from diplomatic correspondence or uh, reports of the World Bank about the situation of the economy in the country. But I tried to get also a sense of, at the time this was happening, how did people perceive it as well? And I found that to be very important because... What the book um, is trying to do in many ways in analyzing entrapment is to understand the choices that these armed groups are making at the time they're making them, uh, given what they know is going on in the war. So if I want to say, well, it's, you know, this one armed group makes the choice to continue fighting and this results in entrapment, we have to think about what could it have done other than the thing it actually did, and was it even plausible for it to do something else? And so, I found that uh, looking at this range of sources, some of which were contemporaneous, uh, really helped in in shedding light on that. You asked also about the uh, cross country statistical chapter, and so uh, there, uh, this is basically um, collecting information about. Um, a, a large number of wars, uh, 140 wars uh, that took place uh, since World War II, um, and uh, that was something that I had gotten used to doing uh, because I had worked as a research assistant for one of my PhD supervisors, Nicholas Sambanis, um, on uh, data sets of uh, Cross country data sets about civil wars. And so the data set that I use in the book is an extension of one of his data sets on civil war. But what it meant was that you would kind of look in a focused way across all of these 140 wars um, to gather information on variables that uh, you thought might matter for uh, quagmire. So um, I was looking at uh, different characteristics of the countries, um, from their geographical situation, their topographical situation, how strong was the economy, and then variables also to measure uh, potential foreign interest in these civil wars. So was this an oil producing country? Um, Was it somehow close to Uh, NATO allies because um, there was a lot of commercial trade between them? Uh, Was it um, geographically proximate to the Soviet Union and its allies during the Cold War? And these kinds of factors could sort of um, tell us whether or not we should expect there to be some foreign interest in that civil war. Um, And so doing that for all of these 140, um, it I think it sounds sort of uh, more difficult or more intensive uh, than, than it might actually be. Of course, you have to know what you're looking for, um, but that's a, a particular kind of research um, that, that many people in uh, studies of civil wars are interested in doing. And I think uh, it can be quite rewarding because you can compare these, these factors across countries and try to get some understanding of why we see these patterns in the data.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, it makes a lot of sense how to go through it. And of course, the chapter goes into a lot of detail about exactly which things you look for and how you measure them, um, which was great to read in combination then with the case study based chapters to see the whole picture. Um, so my next question is, there's always surprises that come up in the research process. What to you is one of the biggest surprises that you came across during the research for this book?
2: Um, I I should say this is um, in some ways a hard question to answer, but um, I, I like it very much as a question because it it forced me to kind of, uh, revisit, you know, this whole process of research and, and all the many dimensions of it. Um, probably some of the most surprising things uh, came during these interviews I did in Lebanon, and uh, the interviews, you know, uh, sort of uh, spanned a whole spectrum of interactions. So some, some were uh, fairly short, half an hour to an hour, once and then I wouldn't talk to the person again, but many were repeated interviews with the same person, sometimes lasting for two hours, even three hours. And so in that length of interaction, you often learn, um, you learn a ton of things that aren't even necessarily directly related to the focus of your research, but that are just about this person's life experience um, having fought in a civil war. And um, comparing across the, the different people who I interviewed, one thing I was really struck by, and I, and I guess surprised by, um, was the extent to which um, there was a kind of understanding on their part that what they were doing in the war fundamentally uh, was about self-defense. Um, why were they participating in this fighting? Why had they decided it made sense to risk their lives and to bear arms and possibly kill uh, other human beings in the course of this? And I was surprised um, that sort of defense of themselves, their family, their neighborhood, their community, I was surprised that this came up um, as such a strong rationale because I, I kind of expected that, Um, that many of them would would still be kind of committed to a broader cause or would really think about the political or big-picture reasons for the war. Um, And so it it struck me then that for for a lot of them, this was very personal at the end of the day. Um, And for me, not only did that surprise me, but then I felt like this was a very... um, Unsettling kind of realization because it, it it was very understandable too. It meant that um, you know it was very easy to imagine oneself in their shoes, making the same decisions. Because who wouldn't relate to defending family, defending your neighborhood, defending your community?
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, that is quite something to realize, especially I imagine if you're making that realization in the midst of a three-hour interview. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, This book was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. And as you are currently Assistant Professor of Political Science at Leiden University, I'm sure you have rather a lot on your plate at the moment. But I still want to ask, what are you working on now or next now that the book is done?
2: So the book kind of, um, for me, the book uh, is aimed at establishing this concept of quagmire and then helping us understand how it can occur, in, in particular uh, through strategic interactions, that quagmire you know, may not be a property of some countries uh, but can be this kind of accidental uh, outcome. And where I think it, it really stops, uh, but was something that began to intrigue me a lot um, as I was finishing it, was it, it really stops um, and doesn't look into uh, all of the choices that the foreign powers are making when it comes to these civil wars. Um, so um, you, you asked actually about what kinds of foreign assistance is coming to these armed groups involved in civil wars. And um, I'd said that, you know, there's a whole range of things that can be going on. The diversity of the kinds of um, Foreign involvement that exists in civil wars is is quite fascinating. You have countries doing everything from humanitarian assistance to uh, all kinds of uh, provision of military material and supplies, um, and everything in between—diplomatic assistance, economic assistance, and so on—and even kind of more uh, surprisingly, countries are often doing many of these things at the same time. So they'll be both selling weapons to the belligerents in a civil war and sending humanitarian aid at the same time. And um, this really prompted for me kind of two kinds of questions. One, um, if we look at this full range of uh, foreign involvement in civil wars, which, um, which sort of patterns of involvement are really related to the incidents of quagmire? The book just shows that having a low threshold of foreign assistance can produce quagmire, but it doesn't say anything beyond that. And so I started really to become curious about how patterns of foreign assistance, particular patterns, might uh, influence quagmire. And then the second piece of that puzzle is really asking uh, what goes on within these foreign governments um, if certain patterns of uh, foreign involvement are more associated with quagmire than others, why do foreign governments choose these in the first place what's the decision making like what's the decision making process like within those governments so for me what i really want to focus on next are those two questions going forward that the book never answered
1: amazing well in fact i just scribbled out my note asking you why might foreign countries provide assistance that could lead to quagmire Um, So, I think that would be an amazing follow up to this book. And I cannot wait to see what comes out of that. Hopefully, we can have you back on the network um, when that book inevitably comes out, because I'm sure it's going to be a great success. So, thank you for sharing that with us so that we can all follow along with your research. Um, So, yeah, finally, thank you for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I definitely want to confirm my recommendation of this book. Um, I definitely know that in my own studies as an undergraduate, as a postgraduate, this would have been a really helpful addition to understand the complexity of civil wars. And so we definitely recommend it for people's reading lists and learning. Um, and thank you again for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Dr. Melcher. It was uh, great to speak with you.